beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? We are building up a new world. I find it helps in these times to let those words sink deep into me. Dr. Vincent Harding surely knew of what he's saying, of that need to remind ourselves what we're about in this work that can be hard and heartbreaking. This version of his song is a live recording of a group called No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians here in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct action spaces and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014 being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. And we are so deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap back with you today. I'm a UCC pastor in the place currently called Denver, Colorado, here on Cheyenne and Arapahoe land, and the faith coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally. This podcast is a project of SURGE faith and is particularly designed for white people, white people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We'd love to hear from you, and especially from folks of color, about how we're doing. The word is resistance. I was traveling last week, and apparently it rained here pretty much the whole entire time I was gone. Before I left, most of the trees were still looking pretty bare and our yard still groggy trying to wake up from winter. By the time I got back though, everything had burst into glory. Lilacs and trees and wildflowers and herbs we cultivate and herbs and plants that arrive in our yard by surprise. As a folk herbalist, I have learned to receive these surprise herbs with a lot more fascination. We're not that interested in a homogenous lawn, which is not ecologically healthy in general and certainly not in the dry altitude of Denver. So while we slowly over time plant patches of things appropriate for the climate, the rest of the yard is kind of left to itself. Every spring is a little different to see what arrives. This year, it's been shepherd's purse for the first time and alfalfa and way more wild lettuce than we've ever had, and a sweet little purple flower whose name I don't know but is gorgeous growing next to the bright sun yellow of the dandelions. Of course, we always have dandelions, and we've decided our yard can be a refuge for them since neighbors around don't seem as excited about this wonder of a plant that has so much medicine for us. Refugees are welcome here. My teacher says that the medicine you need is the medicine that shows up outside your door. Part of what that means, I think, is that we have to relearn who this community is that we find ourselves in, beyond just calling everything we don't know weeds. What are their names? Why might they be here? Do we notice how beautiful they are? 
What's growing outside your door? What beautiful surprise is waiting for you in the unkempt and unkept corners and backyards of our landscapes? John's Gospel again this week, Jesus' prayer right before his arrest. They are yours, he says. They are yours. I am asking on their behalf, protect them, protect them. So I mentioned I was traveling last week. I was down in Atlanta for a few days with all our awesome surge staff for an in-person staff meeting. We live all over the country and some of us had never even met in person before. Plus, we just added some amazing new folks and we're excited for the work that's about to unfold, so stay tuned for that. We stayed in a neighborhood where there were these big old yards, giant trees, everything a bit unkempt around the edges, right out into the lawns. Spring was definitely much further along in the Southland than here in Denver, and the trees were fully leafed out in brilliant green. The yard was thick with white clover and wild strawberries and violets and a kind of sage I had never met before. The yard in the back shifted into wildness. And in fact, beyond the fence, the landscape was just wild. Oaks and sweet gums and poplars and kudzu and ivies and raspberries and cleavers and mushrooms and lichens and honeysuckle, unkempt and unkept. And let me tell you, I got achingly homesick. We joked with my comrades about how easy to fall in love, how easy it is to fall in love with the Southland in the springtime, when everything is brilliant green and gorgeous and luscious and the temperature is perfect and there's not even that much humidity. Who wouldn't love that? But it was more than that for me. Sitting in the backyard under those trees so tall and smelling the sweet, loamy, damp, earthy smell of new, fresh greens and bits of bark and old leaves commingling into rich soil in which it seems literally anything will grow, and feeling the softness of the sunlight refracted through the humid air, and the green, the green, the layers of unkempt wild-edged green, oh, how it reminded me of home. I've lived in this place currently called Denver for 12 years now, longer than anywhere I've ever lived. And though my sense of the four directions is deeply informed by this landscape, mountains in the west always, it doesn't feel like home deep in my bones the way that Arkansas does. The dry altitude and very present sun makes the landscape here just different. Scrubby and scrappy and solitary and dusty and certainly beautiful, certainly beautiful in its own way. The different colors every day as the sun rises and sets and lights up the Rockies. The way cottonwoods just reach right up to the sky anyway. They don't care. They're not supposed to. And obviously the dandelions do just fine. Those brilliant little fractals of resilience. But it's not home. The land that my bones know as home is Drew County, Arkansas. 
where several generations of my daddy's family lived and died and are buried in that earth that lives where the pine and oak forests in the west start to melt into the Mississippi Delta in the east. This means amazing rich soil, gigantic trees, and so much water. Puddles and creeks and ponds and bayous and the horror stories about water moccasins. The small town where I was born is Monticello, the county seat. In the time capsule buried in front of the Drew County Museum, my mama put the book she wrote about the generations of Dunlaps, Crooks, and Berrymans who knew, and still know, I guess, that that land is home. When I was really little, <clears throat> we lived in a trailer out near the small university where my daddy taught music. This was outside of town, so you could just walk across the road into the woods and find ponds to fish in, a nice memory I have with my daddy. When I was six, we moved into town, a house on East Bowling, where kind of like this house we were just at in Atlanta, the yard just sort of drifted off past the fence line into wildness. We played in the creek that ran along the east side all the time, splashing in the water, and played forts on the higher far bank. Sometimes I would pack up my little backpack and go camping for an hour or so in the woods behind the house. There were so many trees, giant sheltering trees, so many layers of green. We moved away when I was nine and didn't come back to Arkansas until I was 16 in 11th grade, but I missed home the whole time. When we moved back, we lived in North Little Rock across the Arkansas River from Little Rock and much more citified than Monticello. Central Arkansas has the rolling edges of the ancient Washita Mountains, so its geography is different than Monticello, though the lush layered greenness was the same. Our family loved to hike and camp in the Flatside Wilderness or Petty Jean State Park and fish in Lake Conway or Lake Maumel. I should tell you sometime the story about when my brother caught a lawn chair. When I was home in the summers during college, I would often get off work at Shoney's in the middle of the night, then drive over to Little Rock and find a spot in one of the riverside parks to sit on a dock and watch the sunrise over the Arkansas River. I haven't lived in Arkansas since 1993, yet it is the landscape that my body knows as home. And there are times when I miss it so much I ache the wild, unkempt, layered green and the softer edge of sunlight. Maybe this is why I don't mind letting our yard here in Denver get just a little bit wild and unkempt in the spring before we trim it back. In Atlanta, that homesickness hit me hard, breathless and teary hard, with such a longing to just go home. by now what any of this has to do with Jesus's prayer for his people in John's gospel. Fair enough. 
Well, I've been thinking about what my seminary professor said about the early and medieval church, how the tradition became that between Easter and Pentecost, Christian communities would spend time meditating together, discerning together about what it meant to be church, to be ecclesia, the gathering of people together for a particular purpose. What are we meant to do and be? How are we meant to do and be? And often at Pentecost, there would be an outburst of activity as a result of that intentional time. I think we see that reflected now in the lectionary where we get these stories in between Easter and Pentecost, these stories of the early Jesus-following communities trying to figure that out too. What did he tell us right before he was executed? What did he tell us in those days when we still felt him walking with us? What do we do? now that Jesus is no longer bodily here. This year we get Acts and lots of John trying to help us remember. In John's Gospel, we find ourselves at the very end of four chapters of Jesus talking a lot. Chapter 13 starts off with Jesus washing his community's feet, actually. Verse 1 saying, he loved them to the end. And then there are questions from his people, questions, variations of, where are you going? And why can't we come with you? Jesus reminds them to love each other, to keep each other safe, and that they are not alone. God is with them. They have an advocate on their side. And then finally, in chapter 17, Jesus prays a few words for himself, but mostly he prays for his community. They are yours, he says to the divine. They are yours. I am asking you. I am asking you. Protect them. Protect them. I protected them. Now you protect them. Now listen, the whole question of who Jesus felt they needed to be protected from is way too easily answered with, quote unquote, the Jews. And if you've been listening to my podcast at all, you know that one, I am not interested in answers that perpetuate anti-Jewish oppression. And two, in John's gospel, that answer is really complicated because the narrative seems to blame the Jews for Jesus's execution rather than Rome, the empire that actually held the power to execute. The community is clearly under stress, and it's important to say we don't entirely understand why. Check out some of our other podcasts on John for more on that. For today, I want to hold with care the intra-Jewish tension that's apparent in this gospel and pull back, let go just a little to those questions from before. What does it mean to be church, to be ecclesia, the gathering of people together for a particular purpose? What are we meant to do and be? How are we meant to do and be? Held lightly, the deep concern from Jesus for the well-being of his community is palpable throughout this four-chapter farewell. Love each other. Protect each other. You're not alone. Oh God, please keep them safe. That's who we're meant to be as community. Notice throughout the four-chapter farewell, he doesn't tell them to rely on the systems of the empire to keep them safe but to rely on each other, 
to rely on the divine teachings he has shared with them, the stories he's told them, the actions they've seen him do, the practices he embodied in community with them, to rely on the divine and the advocates the divine sends. Love each other. Protect each other. You're not alone. Oh God, please keep them safe. Rather like John's gospel, the South can be a complicated place. Not really any different than any other place in this country, because let's be real, white supremacy is not limited to South of the Mason-Dixon line. But you know, it's complicated. I don't live there anymore. Our whole family left in 1993 when I was a year out of college. And though my brothers have moved back, I never have. It's not felt safe being a revolutionary feminist queer lesbian in an interracial relationship. But I say that and then remind myself there's not really any place I've ever felt 100% safe being all of me. In Atlanta, some of my Southern Surge co-workers and I talked at various times about what it means to be from the South, what it means to organize in the South, and center Southern-led organizing in a country that is not invested in the South, not economically, and also not in organizing and certainly not in the progressive church. The South is a convenient scapegoat to point to, as if white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchy didn't run through the veins of every institution in this country. I get homesick for Arkansas. I get homesick for the land and the people who belong to the land. It was Arkansas people, after all, who taught me about being connected to place, to land, about belonging to a place and its landscape. It was Arkansas people who taught me about hospitality, offering a cold Coke or lemonade and plates of food, even if you were just stopping by for a minute. It was Arkansas people who taught me about generosity, who loaded up my parents with corn and tomatoes and squash and okra right out of their gardens and crappie and brim and catfish they'd caught that morning. It was Arkansas people who showed me women in leadership, including in the pulpit, as if it were the most normal thing in the world. Arkansas people who welcomed me when I came out. Arkansas people who found ways to resist racism in our small town. And Arkansas people in our little small town church who taught me that church was supposed to be a place where you felt loved and protected and safe. And I have never, ever forgotten that lesson. As I opened up this podcast, I said, We have to relearn who this community is that we find ourselves in, beyond just calling everything we don't know weeds. As we do this work together of dismantling white supremacy, we have to do that same thing. Relearn who this community is that we find ourselves in. Who is it that we don't know? Who might have medicine for us? Scapegoating the South is easy because we don't have to look deeply at how we, the rest of us, are complicit in upholding white supremacy. But there is no place in this country that is not soaked in the blood of enslavement and genocide. 
What does it mean to be church, to be ecclesia, the gathering of people together for a particular purpose? What are we meant to do and be? How are we meant to do and be? If we write off the South, we write off much of the medicine we need. A layered, rich, green history of resistance and resilience that we need to help us all get free. To live as Jesus teaches and prays, loving and protecting each other, keeping each other safe without relying on systems of state violence. Georgia-born duo The Indigo Girls sing, There's no place like home and none more pleasing than the Southland in the springtime. May it be so. to support and amplify the people of color-led Southern organizing. Donate at their websites and get your friends to join you and share news about their work. Alan Steele lifted up the Southeast Immigrant Rights Network a few weeks ago. Other groups could be Southerners on New Ground, Project South and the Southern Movement Assemblies, or Black Lives Matter chapters. Also, brush up on your Southern organizing history beyond what you remember about MLK. SNCC, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and the work of Septima Clark are great places to start. Something I learned about recently from Arkansas history was the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, an integrated labor struggle to reform sharecropping that also centered women's leadership. Links for all these organizations and resources are in the transcript. Thanks as always for joining me today. Let us know how your action goes We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. We'll be back next week with new contributor Haven Heron giving us a resistance word for Pentecost Sunday, May 20th. I'm excited to hear Haven's first podcast. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available as well on our, on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. Finally, a big thanks to our sound editor for this week, Max Pearl. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Thanks so much. Bye.